0: Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to Acts chapter 2, to the passage that was just read for us. And as you're finding your way to Acts chapter 2, I'm going to voice one more prayer for us. My name is Andrew, by the way, and I serve as one of the pastors here. And I have the privilege of leading us through our study of the scriptures this evening. So uh, let me pray for us, and then we will dive right in. Heavenly Father, would you give us grace as we open up our Bibles? Would you open up our eyes to see beauty, beauty in its pages? Would you give us grace to feast upon Christ through the word that you've given us. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to pay attention uh, to your word. And may we be responsive in ways that would honor you and would help those around us. God, we ask and we pray for all of these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, one of the things about uh, being a Christian is that no one uh, is ever born a Christian. Uh, You know, no one's born a Christian by virtue of the family that they were born into. No one is born a Christian by virtue of whatever cultural context they were born into. Sometimes whenever I'm talking to uh, friends from other parts of the world, there's this assumption in some places that if you're an American, you're Christian, and uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, No one is born a Christian. This was a lesson that Jesus taught a man by the name of Nicodemus who approached him and said, hey, how can I get in on the kingdom of God? How can I be a part of the reign of God, the rule of God, the, the redeemed people of God? And, and Jesus looked at him and said, well, if you're going to see the kingdom of God, you must be born again. Now, this confused Nicodemus because Nicodemus was uh, a religiously devout man. He had a great reputation in his community. He was a hardworking man. He was a respected man. And yet Jesus was telling him that he wasn't currently a part of the kingdom because although he was born physically, he had not yet been born again. Spiritually, and so this dynamic of being born again reminds us that becoming a Christian isn't natural; it is supernatural. And what is true of becoming a Christian is true of what it means to uh, become a church. When you step into Acts chapter two, you see a group of people, 120 at the very beginning of the chapter, of mixed crowd of men and women who had gathered together in unity, praying, asking for the Father to fulfill His promise to give His Spirit. To his people. And they are in unity in this room. They are praying. And then there's this moment where God fulfills his promise and he gives his spirit to his people. And they hear a sound like a mighty rushing wind blowing amongst them. And they look around and they see something like flaming tongues of fire resting on the heads of each person there. It was a wild scene when God was giving his spirit to his people at what is now known as Pentecost. And immediately after that happened, Peter, one of the apostles, One of the OG disciples stands up and he begins to preach the gospel. He begins to declare the realities of what Jesus lived for, died for, rose from the grave for. And and in that moment, you have this collision. A collision between the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of the gospel. And when those two collide, that's when the church is created. That's when the church is birthed in Acts chapter 2. And we might say, that's when a person becomes a Christian. That's when we are born again. It's when we hear the truth of the gospel and we are acted upon by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when those two things are happening, our hearts are coming alive in a way that they had not yet previously been. And so here in Acts chapter 2, you have the birth of the church through the power of the spirit and the truth of the gospel colliding in that moment. Reminding us that the birth of the church, just like becoming a Christian, is a supernatural occurrence. We're told in verse 41 of Acts chapter 2 that over 3,000 people, men and women, put their faith in Jesus in that moment. They repented of their sin. They were baptized, meaning they went public with the fact that they trusted Jesus. And they identified with Jesus and with Jesus' people, which is what baptism is all about. In fact, if you are someone who perhaps your heart has come alive to the gospel and you are repenting, meaning you're turning from trusting in yourself to be your own ruler, to be your own boss, to be your own savior, And you're putting your faith in Jesus. And you're saying, Jesus, I want you to be my savior. I want you to be my ruler. I want you to be my redeemer. If that's your situation and you've yet to be baptized, I would encourage you to be baptized. That's kind of the movement of the gospel in our lives. We come to faith in Jesus and then we want to go public with that. We want to express our faith in Jesus. And one of the most remarkable ways we express our faith is through baptism. It's when we are baptized to identify with Jesus and to identify with Jesus' people. This is what happens in Acts chapter 2. The church is birthed. Everybody's repenting, believing the gospel, and then they are being baptized. And we're told they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Their sins are forgiven, and everyone begins to celebrate. Things begin to change. And all of a sudden, you have this new creation in that space, a new community unlike any other community that had ever existed in the world. It was what started in that moment that would spread throughout the known world. And historians tell us that over the course of the next four centuries— it would change the regular ways in which people viewed the world in the Greco-Roman society. That this community of faith centered on Jesus, those who were believing and had been baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit, and armed with the gospel, these people would turn the world upside down. So much so that by the time you reach the 4th century, The original ways of thinking about life and thinking about the world in the Greco-Roman society began to be uh, turned over. It began to change. All of a sudden, you had people in various places around the world talking about loving your enemies. Nobody talked about that before the church was birthed. All of a sudden, you had people talking about how everyone on the planet carries within them a universal dignity, having been created in the image of God and having been pursued by the Messiah, Jesus. Nobody talked like that before the church. All of a sudden you had a community of faith where rich and poor were coming together in unity in an egalitarian society called the church where there was common ground shared by everyone who had put their faith in Jesus. No one was above anyone else. The only one who was above was Jesus. So you had a remarkable new community that was created in Acts chapter 2. And one of the things that kind of inspired and enacted the church's influence on the world that would shake up the world over the next 400 years One of the things that we can trace back to Acts chapter 2 and discover, okay, how did they, what were they doing that caused them to have such an impact? Why were they so influential? Why were they so attractively different to the world around them? And I think it can be summed up in verse 42 with one word, and that's the word devoted. In verse 42, it says they devoted. Now, the word devoted means to give away. Anytime you devote something, you are giving something away to someone else or to something else or for a different purpose it means to give away and notice what the church was giving away in verse 42 it says they devoted themselves they gave themselves away the church became a radically unselfish people in a world characterized by selfish people and if you want to see how the church can make an impact still today being filled with the Holy Spirit and armed with the gospel it's when you and I Follow in the wake of the first century church, and we recognize how the gospel and how the spirit causes us to be unselfish in the midst of a world that is quite selfish. This is what makes us a distinct community. This is what can make the church attractively different to the world around her. So they devoted themselves, they gave themselves first to Christ. That was repentance, that was baptism. And they gave themselves then to one another. They began to live in harmony with each other in a remarkably attractive attractive way. And so you have this moment in verse 32 where we're told that the the first century church devoted themselves. They gave themselves away. And some of you perhaps have been exposed to Christianity over the course of your life. And maybe you've been turned off by Christianity because of your interaction with the church. Now, the church is just like... um, in some instances, your interaction with the church you have, might have caused you to walk away from the church and maybe even reject the church. And, and I understand how you can draw that conclusion. And I understand how you can interact with different groups called churches in the world and, and be rubbed the wrong way and want to pull back from that. But what I want us to do is look at Acts chapter 2 and, and see how the first Christians, how the first church gave themselves away to Christ and to one another... And then I want us as a faith family in this city to follow in their wake so that if anybody does ever push back and say, I don't want anything to do with the church, I want them to at least push back against the real thing. I want them to at least push back against that which really made Christianity Christianity in the first century. But here's the, here's the deal. If, if we give ourselves to what the first century church gave herself to, and we start giving ourselves away to Christ and to one another, I think we're going to find ourselves more attractive to the world around us and less repulsive to the world around us. And so let's think about this dynamic by looking at how the church what the church gave themselves to what were some rhythms that they kind of stepped into in verses 42 all the way through 47. Now, the thing about rhythms is one of the ways in which you can discover what you're devoted to is by looking at your life rhythms, by stepping back, looking at your checkbook, looking at your calendar, looking at the rhythms of your life. Those rhythms will reveal your devotion. They will reveal what you're giving yourself to. And when you look at the rhythms of the early church, you're going to find what they devoted themselves to, what they were giving themselves away for. And the first thing you find in verse 42 is that they were giving themselves to spiritual formation. That this was a people who wanted to be formed spiritually. This was a people who lived from the inside out, not from the outside in. That's what spiritual formation is all about. Spiritual formation is about you and I being conformed into the image of Christ. But being conformed into the image of Christ means to have a work of God taking place inside us. So that what is inside begins to manifest itself and show itself up on the outside. Now, there can be a a delay between those dynamics There can be a delay between the life of God within a person and the life of God outside of a person. This is why we have to mature and grow up as followers of Jesus. This is why we have to give ourselves to spiritual formation so that we can grow, so that what's on the inside may be reflected on the outside. You think back to Jesus in John chapter 3 where he says you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. What is he saying is that if you become a Christian is that you become essentially a spiritual newborn. And newborns can be quite messy. Newborns make messes. Newborns whine. Newborns cry. As they get a little bit older, they become toddlers. Not much changes. They're kind of like that for a while. And when you become a Christian, the life that Christ is creating within you, it may take some time for it to be fully manifested outside of you, which is why we want to devote ourselves to spiritual formation. We want to devote ourselves to the process of growing together into the image of Christ. We want to give ourselves to that kind of life because that's the kind of life we were redeemed to live. And so spiritual formation, it's interesting that in the New Testament there are multiple places where the Christian life is compared to the development of a human being. Where you go from being a spiritual infant to a spiritually mature adult. And that can, that's a long process that takes a lifetime. Just like your biological life testifies to, your spiritual life will testify to that as well. And so if you've interacted with churches in the past and you find there to be a disconnect between the life of Christ within his people and the life of Christ outside of people, let me encourage you to try to give grace. Give the same kind of grace to them that God has given to you. Don't put yourself in an inferior position Above those who may be less mature, those who may have a harder time showcasing the life within, without. So we want to be patient with the process, but we want to give ourselves a spiritual formation. The way this showed up in Acts forty two, Acts two forty two is that this spiritual formation would come primarily through the word. It says they devoted themselves to what? To the apostles' teaching. They recognized and remembered what Jesus would say in John chapter 17, verse 17, when he prays for his people. And he says to the Father, God, would you sanctify them? That is, would you form them spiritually? Would you conform them into my image? Sanctify them according to truth. Your word is truth. So there's a sense in which we cannot be formed spiritually apart from the word. And there's a sense in which you will, you will not grow to maturity apart from the word. So as a church, what do we do? We give ourselves to the apostles' teaching. This is why we preach the Bible. We teach the Bible. We study the Bible. We encourage one another to read the Bible and to learn how to interpret the Bible and apply the Bible because God is at work through the scriptures to form and to forge his people in the world. In 1 Peter chapter 1, there's a moment where the apostle Peter actually tells the church that, that he reminds them of when they became Christians. And he says, you are like newborn infants. And you're wanting to run past the milk of the word in search of other things to eat. But what you really need is the nourishment that the scriptures provide. Therefore, eat the scriptures. Drink from the milk of the word. This is how you grow. This is how you mature. So we devote ourselves to the, to the spiritual formation. We give ourselves to that. And we do that practically through the word. But not only do we do it through the word. When you come to the end of verse 42, you have this other word pointed out, this word prayer. And so what's bracketing everything, these four things that are pointed out in verse 42 are the word and prayer. Because this is where spiritual formation takes place. Through the word, we listen, we pay attention, we hear from the Lord. In prayer, we speak to the Lord. And all of a sudden you have this communication happening where God is speaking to his people. We are speaking to God. We're engaging in a relationship. And just like all relationships, relationships change us. Relationships influence us. And so the dominant voice we want to listen to is the voice of God in the Scriptures. The dominant person we want to speak to is God. We want to engage in communication with our Creator, with our Redeemer, because in the process of engaging that relationship, our lives are transformed. And we are forged spiritually from the inside out. This was the early church's rhythm. They devoted themselves to spiritual formation through the Word and through prayer. But then also in verse 42 you see that they devoted themselves to what's called sacred fellowship. Sacred fellowship in verse 42. Now, when you hear that word fellowship, and if you've been around churches very long, maybe you've grew up in a building that wasn't a gym like this. You grew up in some other setting, and there may have been a wing or a portion of the building that was called the fellowship hall. And unfortunately, well, this word fellowship has been kind of reduced and restricted to a physical space in a building. But when... This word is used in verse 42. They're not talking about a physical space in a building that is engaged in on occasion by those who would gather in these buildings or run these buildings or whatever the case may be. He's saying, no, fellowship is actually the life that is shared by all of Jesus' people. This is sacred fellowship. This is koinonia. This is saying, look, you and I share something in common. And what pulls us together in community, what pulls us together in family, it isn't our shared love for the Seahawks. It isn't our any affinity. It isn't any hobby. It isn't any language we speak. It isn't the color of our skin or the size of our checkbook. It isn't where we grew up or where we are living now. What pulls us together in faith and in fellowship and in family is Jesus. It is the faith that we have in Christ. This is the sacred fellowship that is being called out in this moment. This sacred fellowship that is common, that is commonly shared by all believers everywhere. It is this word that reminds us that Jesus didn't just die for a person. He died for a people. He didn't just die for an individual. He died for a community. Jesus always intended to claim for himself a people for his own possession, not just a person for his own possession. This is why all throughout the book of Acts, when a person becomes a Christian, they don't just say that person came to Christ. They say, it says often that person was added to the church, was brought into the family of God, was brought into the community of faith, what became a part of the fellowship. And so we share a common fellowship in Christ, a common relationship with Jesus. John, one of the other disciples, would point this out in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3, where he's writing to another group of Christians and he's explaining this dynamic. Listen to what he says. He says, What we have seen and heard we also declare to you, so that you may also have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. He's saying, we're fellowshipping with God, and we want you to get in on that. And as we're fellowshipping with God, and you're drawing near to God, we're drawing near to one another, and we're engaged in a common fellowship, a shared life. It's a beautiful, beautiful dynamic. And what's interesting about Acts chapter 2 is that the people who were made up the 3,000, it was a very diverse group. Remember, there were people in Jerusalem there to celebrate one of the major feasts or festivals that was honored and celebrated annually by the Jewish people or by anyone who's attracted to the God of Israel. They would come to Jerusalem and celebrate these feasts. And so people from all over the known world who spoke many different languages would come there. And when the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, all of a sudden everyone is speaking languages that they did not previously know so that the wondrous acts of God could be declared and heard. It's a miraculous scene. and, And you find this diverse people now finding... A common fellowship in Christ that what brought them together, again, wasn't their language. It wasn't their race. It wasn't anything other than Jesus. And what brings us together and what holds us together in the church shouldn't be anything as superficial as race. It shouldn't be anything as superficial as money. It shouldn't be anything as superficial as any other demographic. What holds us together in this family of faith is our common fellowship in Christ We love Jesus, and if I love Jesus, you love Jesus, that's enough for us to get along. That's enough for us to share life together. That's enough for us to be the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul's writing about this this common fellowship that we have, what we share in common with all Christians everywhere. He says in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body and one spirit. Just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. This sacred fellowship is a common fellowship. Not only is it a common fellowship, it's a caring fellowship. I love this description. It's a challenging description in verse 45. It says in verse 45 that they, that is the early church, sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. They begin to care for one another in ridiculously sacrificial and generous ways. And understand that they're doing this not in response to any external compulsion. No government has come in and taxed the people. No government has come on and forced this type of of contribution to the needs of others to happen. There's no external compulsion happening in this moment. There's no obnoxious apostle calling for everybody to give. There's nothing happening like that. This is an internal compulsion. This is the spirit of God working in the hearts of his people. So that when they're together in this sacred fellowship and they look across the room and they know there's someone in need, they want to give their stuff to help that person. They want to give food. They want to give clothing. They want to give whatever it takes to make sure everybody in the household of faith is cared for. Now, this is some dynamic that is quite encouraging to me as a pastor when I think about the Hallows Church because I see this happening a lot. You don't get to see it as much as I do because of my kind of the perch I have in the body and what I get to see and hear about, but the ways in which you care for one another, the ways in which you rally to people and to help people in need is is remarkable. And but there's a temptation I think amongst our body to to only talk to to always want to be those who are contributing to helping others. And when we find ourselves in a stretch of life where maybe we can't contribute because maybe we're tired, maybe we're stretched thin, maybe life has gone sideways for us, we're not quick to express that because we don't want to be on the receiving end of that kind of help. But if you're in the family of faith long enough, you're going to find yourself in stretches. Well, yes, you are meeting the needs of others, but you will also find yourself in stretches of life where you need your needs met by others. And that's nothing to be ashamed of. That's nothing to hide. In we humble ourselves towards one another to contribute to the needs of those around us and to receive help when we ourselves have needs. My family has been in a stretch of life that's been like that over the past several months. Many of you know that we're kind of in a transitional time with our housing and life situations. We've been moving in and out of places. and. The number of people who've contributed to our needs, who've helped us as a family by taking us into their homes, by feeding us meals, by providing things that we have needed, it's been a huge blessing. In fact, this past weekend, we had another family in our faith family take my family in so that my family of five joined a family of four. And when we walked into the home, this family of faith just said, hey, look, everything here, it's yours. We want you to make this house your home. Let it be yours. And I looked over and saw an espresso machine. I was like, I can get into that, right? (laughs) I haven't drank coffee in a couple of years, but I think this might awaken my desire back again. (laughs) But our needs are being met by this type of caring fellowship. And I know that many of you have similar needs. And if you have needs, would you please make your needs known? Make your needs known to the body. We have stretches of life where we can contribute and we give to people in need, and we also have stretches of life where we need to receive help and we need to be ministered to, and so we recognize this two-way street when it comes to being a caring fellowship. But not only is it a caring fellowship, you can get into verse 46, you find it to be a consistent fellowship, a consistent fellowship. Here's what I mean by this. Look at verse 46. It says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together. They met in temples and they met in homes. Every day they were meeting together. They took advantage of the opportunities they had to be in the same space together at the same time. It was a consistent fellowship. Now you know that Christianity has roots in the Jewish faith. This is why the first Christians, when they came to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the first place they went to worship was the temple, the Jewish synagogues and the temple. They would go there to worship because all of a sudden things at the temple started taking on their deepest significance. As they began to think how Jesus was the fulfillment of all the symbolism and all the imagery of the temple. And so they used to, they would go and they would worship there and that continued. And they, according to this passage, they went every day. But there came a point where the Jewish leaders of these temples and synagogues, they kicked Christians out. They didn't want Christians coming there anymore because they rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And so eventually, later on in the book of Acts, the church is actually dispersed from Jerusalem. They're driven out of Jerusalem by way of persecution and But the point of them, until that happened, they were gathering every single day in the temples. And when they are forced out and they're no longer welcome there, we're told that that's when church history began to shift. And we will read implications and hints throughout the other letters that are found in the New Testament about the the, kind of the worship rhythms of the church. Instead of gathering on the Sabbath in the temple, they started gathering on the Lord's Day, which was considered Sunday, because that was the day of the resurrection. So Christians took it upon themselves to start gathering on Sundays together to worship Jesus, to worship the resurrected Christ. But it also says in this moment that they gathered in homes. They went from house to house and engaging in these dynamics. So really you see this rhythm of Christians gathering in big groups, and Christians gathering in small groups. And churches continue this rhythm today. This is why we gather on Sundays to worship in light of Jesus. And we worship with more people that can fit in a single home. And we unite our voices to sing songs to Jesus. We bend our ears to listen to the teaching of Jesus' words. We, we give ourselves to this time in a big group because we can do things here that we might not be able to do in a smaller group or in a smaller setting. But this isn't the only thing that we do. We gather on Sundays like this, but we also gather in homes throughout the week. We gather in our missional communities, smaller group settings where disciples are sharing meals together. They're looking how they might serve their neighborhoods together. They're engaging in spiritual formation together, studying the scriptures, praying, fellowshipping, doing various things in that missional community setting. And that's the rhythm of the Christian life. We gather in big settings like this. We gather in smaller settings like missional communities. And I know our personalities want to try to pick one of those over the other. And we want to sometimes say things that lead us to believe that the other environment or the other context doesn't have much to offer. So we're like, well, I'm a big gathering guy. I like to be in the big church singing and listening to the word. And that's really where I thrive The small group, I don't get much out of that context. Or we say, you know, I want to be in the small setting because that's where I'm most comfortable in this, that, and the other. But you understand, according to Acts 2.42 all the way down to verse 46, that the first century Christians, the first church, gave themselves to both big gatherings and small gatherings because both big gatherings and small gatherings are needed. They both contribute to our discipleship in unique ways ways the big gathering reminds us that we are one of many and there is a sense that in the big gathering we kind of become smaller and God becomes bigger and we see that he's doing a whole lot more than we realize because we see a lot more people in which he is in whom he is working in the smaller gathering, yeah, we get a little bit bigger. Our voice can be heard. We're able to talk about what we're dealing with and voice our vulnerabilities and our, and our struggles and our concerns. We're able to stand up and serve our neighbors in significant ways. Both the big gathering and the small gathering has their place and their purpose in our lives. But what I really want you to think about in, the cons- in this consistent fellowship, <laughs> you know, Growing as a Christian and being a fruitful contributor to a family of faith is as simple as showing up. Just being consistent to to be present. Be present when the church is gathering on Sundays. Be present when the church is gathering missional communities. Be present when we host prayer gatherings. Be present. Just show up. There is power when people just show up and be in this consistent fellowship together. There's power in it because this is how relationships are forged there's power in it because this is how God's grace is made visible. I mean, it, how many people in the city of Seattle do you think went to a gathering like this? Not many. Especially when the Seahawks are playing at 10 a.m. on Sunday mornings, right? Not many people are doing what you guys are doing right now. But when the culture and people you're connected with see you prioritizing both the big gathering and the small gathering, they see you make room in your calendars for this moment, they see you taking time out of your schedules to step in to worship Jesus with other people, that in and of itself bears witness to them. That in and of itself causes them to take notice and they're wondering, man, this person... There's something to this life that they're living. There's something to this Christianity that they subscribe to. There's something to this Jesus that they talk about. Just being present and showing up speaks volumes. And in light of this, there was an article I came across uh, this past weekend. And it was titled, Living in an Age of Faux Friendships. Faux is in F-A-U-X, uh, fake friendships. It's living in an age of where our relationships are not what they could be. It was an article written by a guy by the name of William Derecevich. I don't know if I said that right, but there was my shot. He wrote an article in the Chronicle of Higher Education. And I think it's interesting. I want to share his thoughts to you. In this article, he examines the new forms of friendship that have emerged in the age of Facebook and social media. He says that while social media has allowed us the opportunity to be connected to everyone, it more often than not comes at the expense of deep, meaningful, consistent, shaping Friendships. Dresovich, there he goes again, writes, the moral content of classical friendship, that is its commitment to virtue and mutual improvement, has been lost. So there was a time when friendship was designed or defined as contributing to mutual improvement. We're not where we need to be and we need each other to grow up. We need each other to improve. He says, but that classic definition has been lost. He says, we have ceased to believe that a friend's highest purpose is to summon us to the good by offering moral advice and correction. He says, we practice instead the non-judgmental friendship of unconditional acceptance and support. He calls this therapeutic friendship. He says, in these instances, a friend fulfills their duty when... By taking our side, validating our freedom, our feelings, supporting our decisions, helping us to feel good about ourselves. How many times have you seen that on a sitcom where a character says, and they're arguing over their friendship, and the friend's trying to challenge them or encourage them to make a different decision than they're making, and their response is, I just need you to support me. I need you to have my back. If you're my friend, you're going to support me and affirm me no matter what. This is what he's saying friendship has become in our culture. He says, That a friend fulfills their duty by taking our side, validating our feelings, supporting our decisions, helping us to feel good about ourselves. Now, you take that definition of friendship and you step onto social media. And you can think about what Facebook has become. For all the things that it can do well, there are some things that it can't do well. And it can't contribute to sacred fellowship. It can't contribute to a common, caring, consistent fellowship. It just can't do it. He says that Facebook's very premise and promise is that it makes our friendship circles visible. He says, there they are, my friends, all in the same place, except, of course, they're not in the same place. They are, get this, a superficial likeness or semblance of my friends. Little dehydrated packets of images and information. No more my friends than a set of baseball cards is the New York Mets. He concludes, friendship is devolving. In other words... Or, sorry about that. Friendship is devolving from a relationship to a feeling, from something people share to something each of us hugs privately to ourselves in the loneliness of our electronic caves. Now, in light of that, or it's because of this, this is one of the many reasons why church online cannot be your experience of the Christian faith. Church online can serve you well in certain kinds of ways, but if that's your approach to the Christian life, if your approach to the Christian life is doing everything online, through social media and podcasting sermons and all these types of things, but you're not engaged in a tangible context of faith, your understanding of the Christian faith has moved from relationship to feeling. And maybe one of the reasons why you have unplugged from the church and you're pushing back from this type of community is because your understanding of friendship has devolved. Or you're moving from relationship to feeling and you think, well, maybe this doesn't make me feel good or somebody asked me a question that kind of challenged me and I don't want to be challenged. I just want to be affirmed and so I'm pulling back. If your experience of the Christian faith is is all entirely online and you're moving in that direction, you're not engaging consistent fellowship with flesh and blood, tangible people, people you can see and touch and, and look and Look into eyes and listen to in person. Your experience of Christianity will be grossly inadequate. It's grossly insufficient and you will not grow, you will not mature in the direction that Jesus wants you to grow and mature in. This is the rhythm of the church. The church engaged in a sacred fellowship. A sacred fellowship that was common, that was caring, that was consistent. And then in verse 47 you find this consistent fellowship was contagious. It says in verse 47 that... The early church was enjoying the favor of all the people, and every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. They were having a contagious impact on the world around them just by being the church together. Not being a Christian in isolation, but being the church together was having a contagious impact on the city of Jerusalem. And there's a way in which you and I can have an impact on the city of Seattle simply by being the church together. Together together, not in isolation, but in real relationships where we share Christ in common, real relationships where we care for one another, real relationships where we consistently gather and scatter together in love to God and in love to our neighbors. So you have this dynamic in this passage where the church was devoting herself to spiritual formation and to sacred fellowship, but then the last dynamic that they devote themselves to is what I would describe as strategic feasting. The church devoted herself to strategic feasting. And this shows up two ways in this passage. One, there's, it pops up around how people were using their dining tables. People were using their dining tables in ways that were strategic, in ways that were affecting and advancing the kingdom of God in the city of Jerusalem. You see this first in verse 46. Verse 46, this is what it says Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple, and here it is, broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God. This is strategic feasting. Remember that the book of Acts was written by a guy named Luke. Now, if you were to go back to the Gospel of Luke and pay attention to the number of times where a meal is. Is either, well, let me back up. There's a book that came out several years ago called Eating Your Way Through Luke's Gospel. And the author of this book read through the Gospel of Luke and he points out Jesus in almost every scene, he is either leaving a meal, he's at a meal, or he's going to a meal. And so you can just kind of eat your way through Luke's gospel as Jesus was engaged in strategic feasting. It's, it's how he was interacting with people was over the dining table over and over and over again. Then when you get to the book of Acts, Jesus' followers are doing what? Well, they, it seems that they are going to meals. They are at meals. They are leaving meals. Everything seems to be revolving around the dining table. This idea of strategic feasting. Why is that? Strategic feasting, this using our dining table is significant because it reminds, because the table has this uncanny ability of turning strangers into friends and friends into family. When you sit down and share a meal with someone, you are saying, we share in the human condition together. So it turns strangers into friends, friends into family. The table reminds us when we're thinking well about the table that we are not God. Have you ever thought about that? Every time you sit down to eat, you are declaring that you are not the creator. Every time you sit down to eat, you are declaring that you are a creature. Why is that? Because you need that food to live. You are not infinite. You are finite. You are not independent. You are dependent. Every time we eat food, we are declaring a fundamental truth about who we are. That we are creatures, we are not the creator. And strategic feasting calls attention to that, points it out, reminding, look, we are all in need of what God provides. And so when we eat, we express gratitude to God for the food that we have. We engage in this rhythm of eating our food with joyful and sincere hearts. We're praising God in those moments. Because the table turns strangers into friends, friends into family. The table reminds us that we are creatures, not creators, and the table tells us significant things about who God is. When you s- this is one thing that every culture has in common on the planet. Every culture has some way in which they arrange the resources of this earth to eat for their livelihood. But they also eat for their enjoyment. This is why there's so much good food in so many different cultures and pockets around the world. Because when you sit down to do that and you see that happening on the world, you're reminded of two things. One, You're reminded that God provides for our needs, therefore we thank him for this food. But we also see in the fact that that food is enjoyable, that God not only provides for our needs, he provides for our pleasures. In other words, the table declares that God is good. Every time you eat something tasty, every time you eat something that is pleasant and enjoyable, you should be reminded that your creator is good to you. And he provides not only for your needs, he provides for your pleasures. So the church is engaged in a rhythm where they're eating their food with joyful and sincere hearts. They're taking a bite of cheesecake and saying, praise God, right? This is what's happening. And, And every time we engage the table in a strategic capacity, we have an opportunity to share ultimate reality with people that we're eating with. With the relationships that are being formed and that shared experience of the human condition, we're able to remind people of how God provided for us ultimately in Jesus. And we are able to remind people that Jesus isn't a big wet blanket, but he's actually enjoyable and he fights for our joy and he fights for our pleasure, that we would find a joy and pleasure, yes, in the things that he gives us, but ultimately in himself as our Savior and as our Lord. This is strategic feasting. To put it another way, how can you use your table? How can your, dining table be- be- how can your dining table become a place for community? How can it become a place for grace? And how can it become a place for mission? How can you use your meals strategically? 21 meals, on average, people share over the course of a week. How can you take a handful of those and share those with people who are sitting in this room with you? How can you take those meals and share those with people who are far from God and do not yet know the love of the Savior? And you want to let that table move you from being strangers to friends, ultimately to family in Christ. So how do we use our tables for mission, for community, for grace? How do we engage in strategic feasting on that front? But that's not the only form of strategic feasting in this passage. The other aspect of strategic feasting in this passage is found in verse 42 because you have the dining table in verse 46 and 47. But then you have what I believe to be a reference to the Lord's Supper in verse 42. The ultimate strategic feast. The ultimate strategic feast is the Lord's Supper, verse 42. And I'll point this out to you in a couple ways. It says they devoted themselves to, get this, the apostles' teaching. There's a definite article there. To the fellowship, there's a definite article there. Even when you get to prayer, there's a definite article that isn't translated in the CSB, but it should be because they devoted themselves to the prayer life of the church. It was definite. It was something it was, it was something significant and sacred in the life of the church. And then when you have breaking of bread there, it's not just some generic eating. It's the breaking of bread. And I think that definite article is a clue that when the church gathered together, they were gathering together to observe a strategic feast in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper that Jesus would give to his disciples the night before he was arrested, tried, and crucified. When he went up to the upper room and he broke, he thanked God and broke bread and distributed it to his people. When he took the cup and he blessed it and he distributed it to his people. And he showcased the new covenant through the bread and the cup in that moment. The same Lord's Supper that Paul would apply to the church in the book of 1 Corinthians. And he would encourage the church to engage in this strategic feast often. And the reason why he would press this into our DNA as a church is because this strategic feast reminds us that the Christian life isn't ultimately dependent upon your devotion or my devotion. This strategic feast is what our soul needs regularly because it is this strategic feast that reminds us Jesus is far more devoted to us than we are to him. And so whatever devotion we give to Jesus, it's always a response to the devotion he gave to us when he gave himself for us. And it's because he gave himself for us that we give ourselves to him. It's because he gave himself for us, we give ourselves to each other. It is this strategic feast that frames our devotion to Jesus. It's this feast every week in our gathering that declares you were loved by Jesus you are forgiven of your sins. You are wanted by God. It is this strategic feast that communicates that reality. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, we read Paul's instructions on this dynamic. And listen to what he says. He says, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he, that is Jesus, was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This is a strategic feast. He's saying every time you partake in the Lord's Supper, I want you to remember Jesus. Remember what he did for you. Every time you partake in the Lord's Supper, I want you to commune with Jesus. Remember that he's ministering to your soul every time you partake of the bread and the cup. Every time you go to the table and you partake in the Lord's Supper, I want you to do so in a way that anticipates Jesus. I want you to think about the day Jesus returns and he makes all things new. And all of a sudden, you're not feasting on a terrible cracker and a little, you know, fake wine or whatever the case may be. You're looking forward to the day when the marriage supper of the Lamb is ushered in. And you sit down with Jesus, with all of Jesus' people, and you engage in the ultimate feast. I want you to go to the table and... Do so in a way that proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. Remember Jesus, commune with Jesus, anticipate Jesus, proclaim Jesus. That's a strategic feast. And that's what's wrapped up in the Lord's Supper every time we go to the table. This is why we go to it every week. Because ultimately when we talk about the church's devotion, we want to always remember that our devotion to Jesus is always a response to his devotion to us. It's because of what he's done for us is why we give ourselves to him and we give ourselves to each other. Strategically feasting week in and week out at the Lord's Supper. So we're going to do that now. We're actually going to respond by opening up the table and encouraging you to go and partake of the bread and partake of the cup. You're going to go to the table at your own pace and you're going to take the bread and hear the words of the gospel. This is the body of Christ that was given for you. You're going to dip it in the cup and you're going to be reminded this is the blood of Christ shed for your forgiveness. That's what all of this is pointing you to. And so you're going to go to the table to remember Jesus, to commune with Jesus, to anticipate Jesus, to proclaim Jesus. That's what this table is going to serve every week, but especially tonight as we go. And so as we open up the table, you're going to be encouraged. If you are trusting in the gospel and you've identified with Jesus, you're going to be encouraged to go and partake of this meal and be reminded of Jesus' devotion to you, how he gave himself for you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to open up the table, and you guys are going to respond at your pace. The rest of us are going to be uniting our voices in song, worshiping Jesus with Corey and Abigail. Let's pray together.